Good afternoon. I'm Adam Scher, Vice President for Collections and Exhibitions, and I welcome you to your reimagined Virginia Museum of History and Culture. I will hope that most, if not all of you, had an opportunity to come to our opening events last week. Um, if not, uh, I hope you'll take some time after today's talk to look around, we've made a few changes. Um, it's really just been an incredible transformation. Uh, thanks to you, our members, uh, and our other supporters. Um, I think uh, we've really succeeded in our goal to make this uh, a much more welcoming experience and uh, to tell a much broader and inclusive story of Virginia in our exhibits and our program. So take a look around. Uh, Tour our new exhibits, have a bite in the cafe, uh, buy something in the in the museum store, um, and uh, and give us your feedback. Um, you know we're we're still shaking out the uh, the bugs uh, in our programs uh, and in this new beautiful space we have, uh, but we're eager to hear from you um, about things that we can do better. So please. Uh, if you see a staff member, uh, someone with a badge, uh, or someone at the front desk, uh, feel free to give a comment. Um, we want to acknowledge, of course, uh, the people who make this program possible, uh, our former trustee, Ann Worrell, who endowed this lecture series in honor of our former president and CEO, Dr. Charles Bryan. And before uh, I introduce Charlie, uh, our speaker today, um, just uh, to give you a few program notes to keep on your calendar. Uh, on May 24th at 5.30, uh, we will have Alex Kershaw here to talk about his book, Against All Odds, The True Story of Ultimate Courage and Survival in World War II. Most of you are probably familiar with Alex. Um, he's a New York Times uh, best-selling author. Um, and uh, uh, it's a hot ticket. Uh, we have uh, almost a full capacity, but I think that there's still uh, some seats available for that lecture. So uh, if you're interested, uh, uh, I encourage you to act soon to, uh, to get a ticket for that. On May 26th at 6 p.m., we'll have our spring garden party at Virginia House. Uh, you'll be able to tour the grounds, uh, enjoy some food and music uh, and camaraderie. Uh, with uh, your fellow members and uh, and with the staff. And finally, on June 2nd, our next Brian lecture will be uh, at noon, where Nancy Shepard will join us for a uh, discussion of her book, Lost Attractions, the Parks and Places that Built the Tidewater. But today, uh, we have uh, a subject that's near and dear to Virginians, uh, of course, George Washington Park Custis who was raised at Mount Vernon by George and Martha Washington. Young Wash would later mark the national landscape by building Arlington House on the Potomac. He was a poor student, uh, but he emerged as an agricultural reformer and a sought-after Federalist orator. An author who knew the first 15 presidents, he wrote well-received theatrical works and produced paintings rich in historical detail. In inheriting much of the vast Custis fortune, he also became the enslaver of more than 200 people. 
the slow march towards their emancipation became a pivotal struggle in, of his life, particularly after his daughter's marriage to Robert E. Lee in 1831. Charles Clark's first full-length biography of Custis offers a 21st century reappraisal of a unique life that bridged the American Revolution and the Civil War. Charles Clark is a retired journalist and a native of Arlington, Virginia, where he continues to write the weekly Our Man in Arlington column for the Falls Church News Press. 2019, he retired as senior correspondent for Government Executive Media Group. He previously worked as an editor and writer for the Washington Post, Congressional Quarterly, the National Journal, and Time Life Books. He's the author of several books, including Arlington County Chronicles, Hidden History of Arlington County, Lost Arlington County, and most frequently, and the subject of today's talk, George Washington Park Custis, A Rarefied Life in America's First Family. Please give a warm VMHC welcome to Charles Clark. So I wanted to dedicate this talk to the late Sarah Bars, who was an important editor here on staff at the Virginia Historical Society. She wrote three excellent articles on Custis that I cite in the book. And uh, in 2019, I contacted her father, who was the eminent National Park Service historian, Ed Bars, who lived near me in Arlington. And he confirmed to me that she had planned on doing a doctorate on Custis and would have been the first full-length work on him. So I just hope that she would approve of the journalistic effort that I made in the last few years. So um, Custis lived what I say is an impactful, unique life. He knew the first 15 presidents. He was a networker. And he attended every inauguration during his lifetime except for the very first. So his life, 1781 to 1857, is, can be seen as a bridge between the American Revolution and the Civil War. But he's less known today. His house was, Arlington House, was taken over by Robert E. Lee and eventually the Union Army and became Arlington Cemetery. But Custis shows up in every major book on George Washington and Robert E. Lee. It's usually kind of a cameo uh, appearance, maybe a little bit cardboard. And there had been no such volume on him, uh, though there are uh, several on his sister, Nellie Custis, who was also raised at Mount Vernon. Um, but he built Arlington House uh, in 1802 to 1818 on the banks of the Potomac. Uh, and Congress uh, officially named it uh, two pieces of legislation in 1955 and again in 72, Arlington House, the Robert E. Lee Memorial. And it closed in 2017 for renovations after they got a, a generous grant from David Rubenstein to bolster its presentation of slavery. And uh, if you're up that way, I highly recommend that you look at it at Open last summer. Um, and Lee is still a big part of it, but he's downplayed a little bit. And the, uh, 
But the, the over-examined over Lee, who lived uh, at full-time at Arlington House for just a fraction of the years that Custis lived there, uh, has also, as you all have noted, been subjected to a 21st century demotion. So uh, this op presented opportunities for this book that I worked on to come out uh, when it did. So here are George Washington Park Custis's parents. Uh, John Park Custis, known as Jackie, also raised at Mount Vernon. Uh, he is the son of Martha Washington from her first marriage. And in the mid-70s, he marries Eleanor Calvert, who was descended from the Lord Baltimore line in, in suburban Maryland. And they were married at Mount Airy, which is in Upper Marlboro, Maryland. And this is where George Washington Park Custis was born. He was the fourth, the only boy uh, out of four uh, in, in 1781. Now, I, this was during COVID, so this place was closed. I had to sneak onto the property and get that photo. but. Nobody really minded, I think. So because Jackie dies uh, uh, when Custis is an infant, six months old, early November 1781, uh, George Washington Park Custis and his sister Nellie, the two youngest, are adopted by George and Martha Washington and raised at Mount Vernon. The two older girls stay with their mother. And um, so, that meant that Custis was raised in a life of luxury, which is exemplified by several of the portraits done by notable painters of the day. This is a couple of samples. And uh, this is the most famous one, uh, which was, it took about seven years to actually complete, but it shows uh, about an eight-year-old washi, as he was called by his family, with his hand on a globe, and I like to interpret that as high hopes that uh, George and Martha Washington had for him. Um, he was uh, doted on by Martha Washington, the young boy. Uh, George Washington was more partial to his, his sister, Nellie. But th this engraving was circulated around the uh, young United States, which made Washi a sort of a household name uh, when he was just eight or, eight or 10 years old. Now, Washi struggled as a student. He had a succession of tutors. If you visit Mount Vernon today, you'll see that this is the North Garden House where none other than Washington's personal secretary, Tobias Lear, would, would tutor him. But he had, he had some other fam famous ones. And uh, let's see, I want to, I think I went too far. Um, so he was sent to some uh, very good schools, uh, starting out in Philadelphia at the, at the school that was the uh, precursor of the uh, University of Pennsylvania. And uh, then he went to Princeton, or College of New Jersey it was called, and he was kicked out of there for complicated reasons. And then he was uh, sent to St. John's College in Annapolis where he had similar troubles focusing and pretended to, he was more interested in women and social life. So uh, I tried in this book, and I did a lot of the research right here in this building, to uh, assemble the, the best version of this. This is a famous exchange of letters between George Washington and his step-grandson about his poor study habits and also uh, 
Washington would correspond with the headmasters of these schools, and he would correspond with other relatives, woe is us, what can we do about Washi? So I just wanted to read the quote. From his infancy, I have discovered an almost unconquerable disposition to indolence in everything that did not tend to his amusements, and have exhorted him in the most parental and friendly manner, often to devote his time to more useful pursuits. Let's see, oh, I'm going backwards, pardon me. So Washington uh, comes home a little bit in disgrace. Washington is what he would be called when he was a little older by Martha Washington. But to be, for clarity, I may still refer to him as Washi. <laughs> um, he uh, was back at Mount Vernon and uh, kind of biding his time. And uh, George Washington, uh, as the war with France threatened, 1798, the war that never actually came, came to be, Washington, George Washington wrote to Secretary of War James McHenry to secure a rank for his uh, step-grandson. He tried to keep that a secret because I think Martha Washington would not approve of that, but Tobias Lear apparently spilled the beans. And Washington later asked uh, McHenry to raise the rank from cornet to lieutenant. But Washington writes, it is not my desire to ask this as a favor. I never have nor never will solicit anything for myself or connections. But then Washington proceeds to write to his factor in Philadelphia, Clement Biddle, to, to purchase fa uh, fancy uniforms and weaponry for the young Wash. So at age 20, uh, Washi is an aristocrat. You know, the Park and the Custis names for much of the 18th century were far more prominent than the Washington name before that changed. And uh, uh, he knew, Custis, that he would inherit a huge part of the estate. Martha Washington left when her death in 1802, Washington's death in 1799, and that included about 200 enslaved persons. So as an adult, the, uh, the young Custis, I say, he, he reached high, he, he recovered, he displayed enough vision to create Arlington House on a choice hill on the Virginia side of the new capital city. And uh, he, he would never really become a great man, I say. He, he tried once for elective office, but I think he came in fourth in a local race in Alexandria County. And he had a few minor appointments besides the cornet in the army. He, he was chair of the Alexandria Committee on Retrocession in the 1840s when they seceded from the district. And uh, he was a justice of the peace in Alexandria County for many years. So I call him an, an eccentric aristocrat, but he was one who was acquainted with the prominent figures in early, um, the early 19th century America in an era when honor and reputation were paramount. So he created Arlington House. Uh, it was built with enslaved and paid labor. It took about 16 years. And it was designed by a British architect, George Hadfield, who had worked on the US Capitol and who did a couple other buildings in, in the District of Columbia. It's done in the Greek Revival style. At first, Custis had planned to name it. It was, it was in honor of the father of the country, the Pater Patrie, George Washington. He wanted to call it Mount Washington, but he gave up on that pretty early. I think there were some other properties with that name. 
So he chose Arlington, uh, which was the Custis family plantation on the eastern shore here. And uh, when he moved in, he carried with him uh, lots of relics from Mount Vernon that he had both inherited and also purchased at auctions. And they included silver and china, the bed on which Washington died, and books that had belonged to Martha Washington. Now, George Washington's books went to the nephew, uh, Bushrod. And it, there was also uh, f fine art paintings. And of course, this is now being stored on, uh, in cabins and, uh, on the banks of the Potomac in all kinds of inclement weather. So you can imagine the, the risks <laughs> being taken there. But as the family patriarch uh, in, ma in making, Custis hosted elegant parties at Arlington House. He held friendly sheep shearing competitions with neighbors, among them John Mason, son of George Mason, a nearby island that is today called Roosevelt Island. Custis would sell hundreds of acres to Alexandria County land tillers, and he would build an important grist mill here in Arlington, which I'll talk about later. So what was missing was the love of his life, and he, he married uh, Molly Fitzhugh. She had grown up uh, in Ch uh, Fredericksburg in a Chatham plantation, and then uh, up in Old Town Alexandria on Orinoco Street, and the family property in Fairfax County called Ravensworth was also a part of her childhood. And uh, she brought with her to, they were married um, in July of 1804, and I was able to obtain the marriage bond. I had to get two permissions for this, the Library of Virginia, as well as the current Arlington County clerk. I thought that was funny. It was easy, but I had to go through the motions. Um, um, Molly brought with her, uh, well, I'll call her Molly because their daughter, they're both named Mary, the daughter's Mary, the future Mary Custis Lee, and so I, I want to make it clear who I'm referring to. So uh, Molly brought with her uh, uh, good relations with her cousin, William Meade, who became later the Bishop of Virginia, was active in the reform of the Episcopal Church. And he was also, uh, with his uh, cousin and others, uh, active in the American Colonization Society. Uh, and, uh, but Meade was always uh, grateful to Arlington House because he had visited it as an undergraduate when he was at Princeton and he was still studying law. And it was his visit to Arlington House where he saw various books uh, that had belonged to George Washington that he, and Martha Washington that he decided he wanted to become a uh, clergyman. Now, the, the, uh, the Custis couple had, um, Molly gave birth to four children, but only one survived. That would be Mary. Meanwhile, Custis embarks on a career of, some people have called him the first preservationist, but he was a monument builder, a monument improver. And in 1815, he took us... Uh, a steamship uh, or schooner now, I should say, with uh, two Revolutionary War veterans down to Pope's Creek on the Potomac, which was the site of Wakefield Plantation in 1732, where George Washington was born. And they rolled out a stone with some help from the locals. And this is, was later called the first stone to commemorate Washington. Now, uh, Custis, as, a, as an individual, where his, I say his first more famous relatives were handsome, soft-spoken, and duty-driven, 
Custis was short, beak-nosed, verbose, paunchy, and playful. In other words, approachable. The, his daughter, in her later introduction to his memoirs, wrote, Mr. Custis was of medium height and well-formed, his complexion fair and somewhat florid, his eyes light and expressive of great kindliness of nature, his voice full, rich, and melodious, his deportment graceful and winning, his courtesy to strangers extremely cordial, and his affection for his friends warm and abiding. Now, he possessed this mellifluous voice that, in an age before microphones, could enthrall hundreds in a room or a public square, often on George Washington's birthday. He endorsed uh, for president, uh, he liked military heroes such as Andrew Jackson and Zachary Taylor, but he was tiresome and he had critics among the Jeffersonians. Who, uh, but he weighed in as an essayist and orator on the top tier issues of the, the first half of the 19th century, which included domestic economic independence, farming innovation, collapse of his beloved Federalist Party, the advent of the steamship and the railroad, protection of the rights of Irish Catholic immigrants, and the first federal benefits for war veterans. He greeted, advised, and entertained countless influential guests at Arlington House. Now, when the U.S. declared war on England in 1812, uh, he opposed that, as did the Federalists in general. But by the time 1814 rolled around, the British were attacking Washington Custis, uh, declared himself uh, ready to fight, and uh, he participated in the, the Battle of Bladensburg, suburban Maryland, and he accepted no, no pay. Uh, his farm innovations were acknowledged nationally in the field, and today the U.S. Agriculture Department on its website has a little notation about Custis's contributions. He experimented with sheep breeding to boost the domestic industry uh, to compete with the, the imported uh, merino sheep. Now, uh, Custis's inheritance uh, included the, the two major plantations on the Pamunkey River. Uh, the one on the left is the White House, which has a, a ties to the Custis family and, and to George Washington and Martha, where they were married there. And the uh, Roman cock, it was called originally. It was later changed to Roman coke. And uh, you got to keep in mind that the profits from, for Custis's businesses were derived from these two plantations down on the Pamunkey, less so at Arlington House, where much, much of the, the work was done just to grow food uh, for the family and for the gardening. So there were about 60 enslaved persons at Arlington House, but about 130 or 140 between uh, Roman Coke and the, and the White House. Um, this is an example of a, a, a ledger that the caretaker would report to Custis on, uh, and it would, uh, it's uh, difficult for modern people to uh, handle it, uh, interpret it, but it's the, uh, livestock would be on the same page as the, as the enslaved human beings. And there would be progress reports on which of the enslaved were ill and what their ages were. Uh, but Custis was really not a talented business manager. And this, even his own daughter admitted that. And, and he's, uh, a lot of the correspondence can show him begging banks for loan forgiveness. Um, 
A big turning point then in his life was when Lafayette made his famous grand tour of the young United States in 1824 and 1825. Now, uh, Lafayette had remembered Custis when he was just a three or three-year-old boy, and uh, during that tour, uh, there was a famous dinner at Arlington House, which I used to open the book. But Custis traveled with Lafayette, and they went to Mount Vernon and Fort McHenry and Yorktown, and they would debate slavery. And by, the, by this time, Custis was active in the American Colonization Society, whose mission was to recruit free blacks and have them deported to Africa, which the, the country became Liberia. And uh, uh, Lafayette was an abolitionist. So Custis would spend the day with Lafayette, and then he would come home at night and write notes. And he eventually turned these into 16 published essays. They were called Conversations of Lafayette. They talked about a lot of those big issues of the day. And that was really the beginning of his career as a journalist and a memoirist. And the editor who helped him get a lot of these published, William Seaton, was editor of the uh, pro-Jefferson National Intelligencer, but he was also a more general publisher, and he later became the uh, District of Columbia uh, mayor. Um, biggest red-letter date then in Custis's life in middle age would be the 1831 wedding of the Army officer Robert E. Lee and his daughter, his only daughter, Mary Custis Lee. Now, they had known each other since they were children and had probably played together. And uh, Mary would recall uh, having seen a, a teenage Lee uh, during that visit from Lafayette, actually, uh, in, in uniform in, in Alexandria. And so they had their wedding in the parlor at Arlington House. Custis was a, a, initially reluctant uh, to give his consent to the marriage because he didn't really want his daughter in a military life. But that's what happened, and they would be transferred around the country and didn't spend as much time at Arlington House as, as a normal marriage would, would have allowed. Uh, the other interesting thing is that Lee's boyhood home, as it is called in, in, in Alexandria, which, by the way, is on the market right now for 2 or $3 million. It's been in private hands. But it um, was not just Lee's boy. It was Lee's boyhood home because his father, Light Horse Harry Lee, who Custis also knew and, and wrote about, uh, was renting it from William Fitzhugh, Custis's father-in-law. <laughs> so Molly and George Washington Mark Custis were married in this house, but that doesn't, they don't really bother to put that on the plaques because it's, it's overtaken as, as Lee's boyhood home. Um, now, another example of uh, Custis's responsibility for uh, curating George Washington's memory is that in 1836, uh, he worked with President Andrew Jackson and some others to arrange for a, a, a reburial and rehabilitation of the grave of Mary Ball Washington, the mother of George Washington. And her grave had fallen into disrepair down in Fredericksburg. So they, uh, he packed up the, the tent that George Washington had used in Revolutionary War battles, which his enslaved valet, Philip Lee, was responsible for pitching. And they, tra they transported down on the water to Fredericksburg, and 15,000 people gathered in what today is the historic district of Fredericksburg, right near Kenmore Mansion, 
the, the then owner of Kenmore Plantation, a man named Samuel Gordon, had paid for uh, a, a, a much more uh, substantive uh, monument to uh, Martha, uh, Mary Ball Washington. So that's a picture of the way it looks if you go there today. And this is the famous battlefield tent. There are actually several components to it, but this is the one you can see in the Museum of the American Revolution in Philadelphia. But they, there's another component of it in uh, Yorktown Battlefield. And it was stored for many years at the U.S. Patent Office. And Washington, uh, George Washington Parkhouses wrote in, in letters about how he worried, that even though he loved to set it up for military picnics and things on Washington's birthday, it was uh, uh, in danger of being uh, damaged due to wear and tear. Um, Locally, that is, if you're a Northern Virginian, as I, it's, uh, Custis was, had a high-impact role in uh, uh, building the uh, grist and sawmill that's uh, on Columbia Pike in Arlington. And this is an, an engraving from the Civil War when the Union troops marched right by it. But it gives you a good sh idea of how large it was. And it was uh, manned by enslaved persons. and. Uh, it was burned down during the war, and it was uh, later uh, John Barcroft built a bigger mill on that same site. Uh, but Custis was also active in uh, the building of the Alexandria Canal. He had to sell some of his land to the entrepreneurs for that. And a private real estate project called Jackson City, at which President Andrew Jackson was persuaded to lay the uh, cornerstone, but it was really kind of a luxury home development on the Potomac River next to what today this is the 14th Street Bridge, but it was it pretty much failed in the 1830s and 1840s and, and became kind of a high crime area in the latter uh, 19th century. Uh, Custis also, he takes a famous trip more on the monument building in, in 1845, got lots of coverage in newspapers all over the Northeast where he went up to uh, Bunker Hill and uh, Lexington and Concord, and he was, he was a little upset that he didn't think that Bunker Hill Battlefield was being sufficiently preserved. Um, in middle age, uh, in the 30s, they were starting to plan the Washington Monument. And uh, though he didn't have an official role in that, he corresponded with a lot of the people who were planning it. And he even offered his site at Arlington House as, uh, to be the Washington Monument. And it took 20 years, you know, you all remember that the, the monument was begun, I think it's 1848, it's begun and then construction halts during the Civil War and it's only half built. But Custis has a uh, donated a stone with his name on it, it's somewhere up on like the 60th floor or something. You're not allowed to go in those places anymore today. But um, And then uh, he also, in his... 40s and 50s became an active playwright. And he chose, of course, a lot of George Washington themes. That's what the Indian prophecy is about. Uh, uh, it's a story that uh, in 1770, when uh, uh, Washington's physician, uh, James Craig, thank you, uh, and Washington went back to West Virginia to look at the sites uh, from the French and Indian War, uh, where Washington had made his name. And they encountered one of the Indians uh, that they had met years early, and that Indian supposedly t told them that he remembers uh, a great white, white leader on horseback who seemed invulnerable to their weaponry. 
and that one day he would predict he would be the leader of a great nation. Of course, that's Washington. He, uh, play, he, his other plays involved Pocahontas. He, he tried to uh, write a play on uh, 14th century Scotland, but it was kind of a flop. And he, he had hundreds of, of people in the audience, 2,300 at one production. They were produced in Boston, New York, uh, at the brand new National Theater in Washington, D.C. in 1836, and down in uh, uh, Charleston. Uh, but I think the critics, uh, some of the professional drama critics, were not as impressed. Uh, and he, won, he wrote one play under deadline in nine hours. He also took to painting. And if you go to Arlington House today, you, you can see his studio with all it's re set up again with all the equipment. And even his daughter acknowledged that he really wasn't so skilled, but... <laughs> His paintings did uh, deliver a lot of battlefield detail, uniforms and weaponry that uh, he was qualified to give since he had talked to a lot of the participants. And so uh, he, he, his paintings were displayed briefly on Capitol Hill and in City Hall, but uh, some senators complained about how bad they were, so they got taken out, which humiliated him. Uh, now, Custis, he, he did, oh, this is another example of his work. This is called his equestrian painting. Uh, Custis did have detractors. Um, he, uh, the, besides the Jeffersonians and the anti-federalists, uh, some of them critics regarded him as a, a George Washington pretender. He was nicknamed the inevitable after-dinner speaker in later life. He seemed kind of stuck in the past in, in late middle age. Uh, he was one of the last in the 19th century to appear in knee breeches and ruffled shirts, and he sang Revolutionary War era songs well into the 1850s. So that's why I say that you know, his life was kind of an amalgamation of mediocrity and national greatness. But as the head of the American Colonization Society wrote uh, later, Custis read much, his memory was quick and retentive, and his knowledge of history and public affairs of the world was remarkably full and accurate. So this brings us to really the big issue in his life, whether he liked it or not, which was slavery. So his, his attitude was complex. So this is a printer's proof of uh, the laissez-passer documents that an enslaved worker would need to have. If he wanted to go off the property, or was asked to send into Old Town Alexandria to uh, by purchase things that he would have to get a, a signature of Custis and Custis would throw in a little spending money and he was very uh, apparently very willing to give su such permission. But Custis also, he showed up at the annual meetings of the American Colonization Society and he uh, argued with a lot of sort of pseudo-scientific arguments and, and uh, data about how uh, skin color determine which races were best suited for which clients, climates, I should say. And uh, he, he was, uh, but you, know, you got to remember that the American Colonization Society was very mainstream. You know, it was formed in 1816, and it had uh, James Monroe and Bushrod Washington and Supreme Court Justice John Marshall were involved, as were the presidents of the major colleges at the time. And uh, it was heavily attacked by the abolitionist editor, William Lloyd Garrison. And he wrote, uh, uh, he attacked Custis by name. And Nellie Custis was so furious uh, at, 
Garrison's uh, rhetoric, which she considered dangerous, that she wrote an angry letter about him, which I reproduce in the book. And of course, Frederick Douglass later denounced the uh, American Colonization Society. In the end, about 16,000 American blacks did go back to Africa, and a couple of them were from Arlington House, and they wrote to Mrs. Lee, uh, Custis Lee, to uh, keep in touch with her and said they were doing well there. So I'm so pleased that in the modern era that I get to individualize the enslaved persons a little more than perhaps would, was done uh, you know, in decades past. So there are three major uh, individuals uh, and families that I want to highlight at Arlington House. Uh, Selena Gray and her husband Thornton. She's best known. She was Mrs. Lee's uh, chambermaid, and, and she rescued the Washington treasures at the start of the Civil War when the Union troops were arriving to, to occupy Arlington House. And she uh, arranged for them to be stored at the U.S. Patent Office. Uh, then you have the Parks, Lawrence the father and James the son. This is a drawing of Lawrence Parks, an enslaved man, done by Mary Lee, when she was probably a teenager. She used to draw a lot. And the son James Parks is so interesting because he was born as an enslaved uh, uh, person in the early 1850s. And after the Civil War and emancipation, he stayed on as a worker for the U.S. Army at uh, Arlington Cemetery. And he would live until 1929. And in 19, uh, 1928, uh, the Evening Star published an interview that a, a local uh, scholar had written interviewing uh, him about. And that's where we get some of the information about what it was like to be an enslaved person and under Custis and how Custis was not so cruel as maybe perhaps Robert E. Lee was. We can talk about that later. But the biggest story of the enslaved community, and you can see all this if you visit Arlington House, was this, the story of Mariah Syfax. So it had long been oral tradition, but it's pretty much been verified through other means that Custis fathered uh, a child with an enslaved woman at least once, maybe more, because there were lots of mixed race children on the plantation eventually. But in 1803, uh, Ariana Carter, who was the mother who uh, came over from Mount Vernon, she gave birth to Mariah uh, Carter, who then would marry Charles Syfax. And uh, the first clue that we have that, that, that Mariah Syfax was Custis's daughter comes in 1821 when... Uh, they are permitted to have their wedding in the parlor, which was unusual in the enslaved community, and Mariah and her husband, uh, Charles. And then in 1826, Custis manumits Mariah and her children, but not Charles for mysterious reasons, and gives them 17 acres of land in Arlington House property. And that land would stay in the Syfax family, which is still very united and does a lot of genealogy, uh, well into the 20, uh, 20th century. And finally, in the 1880s, when she was nearing the end of her life, Mariah Syfax gave an interview to a Kansas reporter in which she said that, that George Washington Park Custis had called her in one day and said that, I am your father, and uh, that she was very close, and that Mrs. Lee is your sister, and that they were, Mrs. Lee, uh, Syfax said that Mrs. Lee and she were always very close. Uh, this is where Mariah Syfax is buried with uh, other family members in uh, Suitland, Maryland. 
And if you, do, if you go to Arlington House, you'll see that they do a family tree of the Custises and the Washingtons and the Lees, and they have a direct dotted line now between Mariah Syfax and Martha Washington. She would be the great-great-granddaughter. Uh, so we'll see whether that, that takes. So in the 1850s, Custis is uh, nearing his final days, and there's a, uh, there's a grouping of, of deaths in the extended family. Uh, his sister Nellie dies, I guess it's 1852, and his, uh, his sister uh, Martha is 1854, and his wife uh, Molly dies in 1853, which put Custis uh, kind of at a loss and had to have live-in uh, help from cousins, uh, nieces, to help him get along. And uh, he finally succumbs to pneumonia in October of 1857. His funeral at, in the Arlington House front yard was attended by thousands. It got worldwide press coverage. There were military units in formation. It's interesting that Custis had been invited to attend what would be the 1858 opening of Mount Vernon as uh, uh, refurbished, uh, rescued by the Mount Vernon Ladies Association. But of course, that, that was not to happen, although the, the ladies continued with their work. Um, and then there was a big fight over Custis's will, and I reprint the will in the book, uh, because he, Robert E. Lee ends up as the executor, although legally it's Mrs. Lee who inherits Arlington House. And Custis... Uh, says that all the enslaved persons should be freed within five years. And, uh, but at the same time, uh, each of the seven grandchildren need to inherit $10,000, which is a lot more money back then. So Lee is stuck with this uh, kind of no-win situation where he's supposed to make the two plantations profitable enough to come up with that money for the grandchildren. Uh, and he's not inclined to free the slaves. The slaves themselves had been told, and they testified to this in court cases, that they had been promised their freedom instantaneously. So Lee uh, delays, and so it's not until the middle of the Civil War, December of 1862, right after the Battle of Fredericksburg, that Lee frees the slaves. So after Custis dies, uh, uh, this is the final photo of him, which I'll, I'll come back to that, I think. Uh, this is his grave at Arlington House. That's his wife's there on the right. And you can see that oak tree has, uh, is damaging those tombs, and we're hoping that the uh, Army will do something about that. They're in charge of it rather than the Park Service. So Benson Lossing was an accomplished archivist and historian, journalist, sketch artist who had written widely on Mount Vernon and on Revolutionary War battlefields, and he did a whole profile feature in Harper's magazine on Arlington House in 1853 and became friendly with Custis. So for the next four years they corresponded and you can see towards the end of Custis's life that Lossing is writing him these kind of seduction charming letters trying to persuade him to put pen to paper, tell us what life was like live, growing up with George Washington, hurry don't write plays or paint <laughs> because you're, you're, you don't have too long on this planet. He's, he's in so many words, he's saying that. So uh, after the death, uh, Lossing teams up with uh, Mary Lee, the daughter, and they edit and put together the book. And it's published in 1860. 
and it's about 600 pages. It's a fat compendium with lots of different elements to it. I've tried to read the whole thing, uh, but I use it more for reference. And it has profiles and recollections and uh, material such as his own version of the letters between George Washington and him when he was in, when he was in college. But to give you an example of the kind of information that the public, it sold pretty well at first, uh, the public wanted uh, about George Washington as late as 1860 was Custis was asked uh, which um, George Washington likeness is the most accurate. And he told this New York businessman, Trumbull for the figure, Stuart for the head, and Sharples the expression, and you have all you can have of the portraiture of Washington. So after Custis's life, um, he... Um, Let's see, I think I want to do this. Uh, he had uh, a passenger steamer and a Civil War balloon named for him. Uh, there was a waltz and a polka written for him about Arlington House. So I talk about in the, in the ending of the book, and I want to give credit to my colleague, uh, Matthew Penrod, who wrote a fine afterward for the book. He spent 28 years at Arlington House uh, as a ranger. Uh, you ask, could Custis have imagined himself, have imagined the forces that his life had unleashed? I mean, if he had lived to see his son-in-law leading Southern troops in the Civil War. Uh, it's no surprise that Custis would mimic his hero, George Washington, in freeing his enslaved people only after his own death. He also seemed to have presumed self-servingly that Lee, as his executor, would work miracles in paying for the emancipations by heightening profitability at the plantations. But his relative leniency towards the enslaved and his ill-fated enthusiasm for the American Colonization Society were likely overshadowed in his mind by where his heart lay. That being the central theme of his life, a patriot's perpetuation of the fame and memory of George Washington as a sun that never sets. To the end of his days, Custis preserved what I call a patriotic optimism, one that leaped from his orations and writings, but was perhaps out of step with the times during the days when a great national unpleasantness loomed. So here's what Custis told the Jamestown Society in one of his final speeches. If in the wildest days, the wildest that ever was born of woman had been told that the United States of America in the short period of some threescore years would become one of the leading powers of the world and would be in a short time the mistress of the world, he would have pronounced the prophecy an idle dream. So that's my formal presentation. Um, I did want to add a little coda if any of you uh, like to travel to the Pamunkey River just an hour east of here. This is what you would see of uh, what on the left was the White House. It's really a suburban subdivision now. This is somebody's backyard that this picture is taken from. And on the right is what Roman Coke became. And it was, it's really more of a, a former railroad track buried in the woods without much uh, human life nearby. But I greatly enjoyed my visit to the St. Peter's Episcopal Church. A lot of active parishioners still there. They're not all talking about Custis, I must admit, but they were just being normal churchgoers when I was there. But uh, it's, um, you can see uh, the Custises uh, and Washingtons all attended this church at various times. And in the uh, graveyard is the uh, tomb, the grave of the rector who married George and Martha Washington, David Massam. So 
I recommend that to you all. So I'm ready to take any questions people have either by Zoom or in the, in the audience. And uh, I will repeat the questions uh, if we hear from people uh, by Zoom. So. Yes, two microphones there. Thank you. Molly's uh, last name. Uh, can you say something about her family? Yes, the Fitzhughes. Yeah. Fitzhugh Lee, was, you said, was her last name. Well, that's the name of one of Robert E. Lee's sons. So that's by, it's very confusing. These interlocking Virginia families, and they all take each other's names. So William Fitzhugh was a wealthy planter, and he first uh, built this Chatham uh, plantation, which is right in downtown Fredericksburg. You can still visit that today. It's run by the National Park Service. And uh, there was a big slave rebellion there in 1805. He was getting nervous about So he moved up uh, to Alexandria, where he uh, took over the house. I think it had already been built that I described as Lee's boyhood home. And then his family built Ravensworth, which was a big house uh, out in Fairfax County, which today is off of Braddock Road, and they have a sign there. It burned down in the 1930s. But all the Custises and the, the Lees and the Randolphs uh, would inhabit all of those properties at different times. And there's yet another property called Hope Park in Fairfax. And that's where David Stewart, who uh, was a, a DC a planter and a wealthy planter, he married Washi's mother after uh, she lost her first husband. And they went on to have a, a dozen or more, more children and it's interesting that uh, Washi was being raised at Mount Vernon while his stepfather and mother were continuing to raise an even, big, even bigger family. So. You mentioned that um, Custis was a very uh, calm and gentle slave owner, uh, but that Robert E. Lee was not. Can you, you said you were going to yes. comment on that, and I must have missed it. No, you didn't miss it. It's an excellent question, and I, I was sort of saving it for the Q&A. Because, you know, I, I want to be a Custis uh, specialist. I'm not really a Robert E. Lee specialist, but I learned in this research that you really have to branch out, and, and I read numerous biographies of Lee, and I read a lot of letters from him, too. But I do talk about this drama in the book that Lee was accused of, I mean, he, he was of mixed minds on slavery. He, he couldn't uh, join the uh, Colonization Society because he was a military officer. He couldn't take public positions. But in, uh, and he felt guilty. He thought that slavery degraded the white man as well as the, uh, the blacks. And so uh, people, the people who defend Lee also say that he was argue, he, the reason he fought for the South had to do with his family ties and identification with his home state less than his, the cause of slavery, but that's debatable. But in the book, I talk about this drama where there's a letter uh, published, and it's written by the brother of Selena uh, Gray, who I talked about, uh, Wesley Norris. Her maiden name is Norris. And he was uh, escaped from Arlington House with two others, and they were caught and rounded up. And this is all according to a letter that was published about 1860 or so. And they accused, uh, they were brought into Alexandria and whipped. 
and supposedly Lee himself did the whipping and he, he stripped the woman uh, barebacked and where she had wounds and he rubbed salt in them. There's all this detail. And so that has, uh, in more recent years, uh, a lot of people have... Uh, and, and then if you read the, the traditional biographies of Lee, or Douglas Southall Freeman, or I read Emery Thomas and uh, Michael Corda, they, this is where they sort of make fun of Custis as being you know, too timid and, and weak. And Lee was a manly man who could extract more labor from the, uh, the enslaved. That's sort of the image in the past. That has changed in the more recent biography of Lee. The most recent biographer, Alan Guzelmo, accepts the truth of this claim that Lee would have whipped this poor enslaved woman. You know, it, it's a little out of character for him because he was a, a commander. He, you know, was, uh, he had people that he would delegate such unpleasant tasks to, you would think. And uh, there's also, when the abolitionism is a big controversy, you know, you can imagine that there's propaganda on both sides, and you don't know for sure. You know, it's the only only evidence we have for this is the Norris letter. But I, I print the Norris letter in there, and my approach was to let the readers decide. Really, I don't still consider myself enough of an expert to say exactly whether it's true. So, does that help? Yes. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Any others? Yes, sir. Washi was dismissed from the College of yes. New Jersey for complicated reasons. Yes. I wonder if you'd elaborate on that. Thank you for that question, too. <laughs> so uh, it's interesting that the recollections were published uh, with the sample letters from Washi and George Washington, so it's very clear he's a bad student. But there's never any explanation about why he's uh, uh, kicked out. And uh, there, there's clues, you know, there's a lot of Fourth of July parties and there's a lot of uh, uh, kind of party boys, we would call them today, uh, among his uh, roommates. And uh, it wasn't until the 20th century that the faculty minutes at Princeton were uncovered that showed that he was dismissed uh, in a faculty senate vote for... Uh, improper behavior or something. So that's as close as we get to an answer. But uh, it's just interesting that, you know, of course the Recollections book has to be taken with a grain of salt. It's, it's not gonna, I, I doubt they would acknowledge that even if they knew it at the time. But I don't think maybe his daughter even knew that, you know, so my guess. <laughs> Any others? Anybody on Zoom will have questions? I'll go ahead and ask one question, yes, sir. which is, um, he didn't live to see the Civil War, but in his writings and discussions, did he express uh, sympathies towards Union or, or secession? Excellent question, too. So he, in the 1830s, there was this crisis about nullification, where a lot of the uh, Southern, uh, especially South Carolina, were, were threatening to secede uh, if they, the trade laws were enforced. and. They also objected, they had a gag rule in the Congress where they would say no debating slavery. So Custis objected to all that, and he, he mocked the South a little bit in his writings on, to the uh, American Colonization Society. He, he talked about the Southern people made a mistake in becoming so dependent on slavery. So I think it's pretty clear that he wanted, and as a Federalist and a George Washington admirer, that he would want the country to stay united, and I think he would have been very upset with Robert E. Lee 
for uh, fighting for the South, but that's that's just my opinion. So. Any others? Yes, sir. It's a contemporary or modern uh, viewpoints about um, learning disabilities and so forth, and and also my personal slight connection with kids in high school that were really quite bright. Uh, I wondered as you described his behavior and then these later things that he got into, I, I wondered if you ever considered or any of the uh, published material ever discussed whether or not maybe this guy was a, was a bright kid and uh, maybe like Einstein, so to speak, as was famous to have been a, a failure as a student, but turned out to have a mind that worked in different ways than the average educational system wanted. Mm -hmm. um, so it, it makes me wonder uh, um, a little more about this guy in these kinds of ways. Well, I think that's a fascinating idea. You know, you could, you could go back and examine his letters. Yeah, of course, he, he's very articulate in his letters. Uh, even when he's buttering up George Washington for saying, I'm so glad you're paying for my college and I promise you oh, next month I'll do much better than I did last month. <laughs> you know, sort of, uh, I'm paraphrasing there. But you're right that uh, I, I, more of the evidence to me seems that he was a rich kid who knew he would inherit money and that the, George Washington specifically warned about the temptations of drink and women for college kids. It was a, it was a common problem for the aristocrats. And so, uh, but the idea that, I mean, he, he, he was really kind of a genius if he could interview Lafayette uh, and produce these essays and write a play in nine hours. Uh, so, I mean, you're right that it's possible that uh, he had some kind of ADHD and that he grew out of it. Maybe that's something that you would probably know more about than I do, but good point. Just in that same line of questioning, I mean, from what I've read, his father was kind of a party boy, too. You and, are correct. And didn't, you know, didn't really take George and his education too seriously. So I don't know if it was just Martha spoiling or... Because, I mean, I, I sort of remember, I think it was Ron Chernow's book that sort of the pattern was repeated, you know, Martha spoiling. You're right. Thank you for mentioning that. See, it's so... Uh, John Park Custis was a student at, in New York City at King's College, which became Columbia. And it was the same drill. Washington was writing to him. See, Washington, you remember, had no formal education. So he was desperate for these adopted sons, first John Park Custis and then his son, Washi, to outperform him. And it must have been so disappointing for him when they, all he wanted to do was party. You know, so. <laughs> so what do you think? Is that... All right. Well, I enjoyed it very much, you. I appreciate you coming. Yeah. <laughs>